How are you guys? Great. Awesome. Awesome. If you're new to Table Community, my name's Justin. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, really quick, just as a way of honoring and thanking him, can we give Adam just a round of applause? Um, Adam is, uh, as you guys know, we're in this kind of interim season with, uh, as we're looking for a new worship director here at TCC, and we've just been inviting friends of ours in to lead you, and Adam, uh, who is on stage, and our Adam, uh, we've been referring to them as First Adam and Second Adam, um, uh, Adam, our executive pastor, and Adam went to Bible college together, so uh, feel free to corner Second Adam and ask him all the good questions uh, later about our Adam. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive into uh, the scriptures. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for just another opportunity to gather with other followers of your son, Jesus, as we sing and study your word and take communion. God, we partake in these sacred acts as believers have been doing for thousands of years, not out of religious duty or begrudging obedience, but God, we do these things because we believe the gospel and our lives have been changed as a result. God, as we look at your scriptures this morning, we ask for your Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts to your voice. May we continue to be changed by the truth in this book, and may the gospel of Jesus, the life-changing, soul-restoring good news of Christ, be exalted in every passage. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are a few moments in a man's life that he will never forget, moments in time that are etched in his memory forever. For example, I still vividly remember the first time I ever experienced love at first sight. The year was 1989. I was a precocious four-year-old walking into his preschool class for the first time. I walked into that classroom and I saw her, Jacqueline Brown. And she had this reddish blonde hair. And I remember coming home from preschool that day and telling my mom, I met my wife. I'm going to marry the girl with the golden hair. It's just a memory that's etched in my mind forever. I can still vividly remember the first home run I hit in Little League Baseball. I, I could take you back to the field. It was middle of summer in Florida. It's brutally hot. I was playing for the Red Sox, who were sponsored by some local plumbing team, you know, logo on the back of the shirt. And my coach was Jimmy Jones, and I hit a home run. And the reason it stands out in my mind is not only was it my first home run, but my mother, who is and was and still is my biggest fan in life, was so excited that her baby boy hit a home run that she ran around into the dugout. And as she was running into the dugout, as I had finished rounding the bases, she did not notice that there was a ground rake laying on the floor. She stepped on the rake, and it's, it hit her square in the face. <laughs> not embarrassing at all for a 10-year-old young man in front of all of his friends. It was a moment I'll never forget. On a more serious note, I can vividly remember the moment I saw Katie for the first time. It was a Monday night in 2008. I had just wrapped up a theology class at Western Seminary with Dr. Gary Bashirs. It was late in the evening, and a bunch of my coworkers were gathering together at Rock Bottom Brewery to grab drinks and play pool. So I finished theology class. I hopped on a TriMet bus and rode it to downtown Portland. I walked into Rock Bottom Brewery. I saw my coworkers there playing pool, and I walked over to my boss at the time. Her name was Andrea. I gave her a hug, and Andrea said, Justin, have you met my sister, Katie? And I was stunned. As the old song says so poetically, uh, first comes love, and then comes marriage, then <laughs> comes baby in a baby carriage. I, I remember a few years after that, uh, walking with Katie into a small cinder block home in West Africa to meet our daughter for the first time. I'll never forget that scene. It was a small, tiny 
little home. It was hot. There was no AC. There was this nine-month-old little girl sitting on an old blue couch, and she looked terrified. And her foster mom kept pointing at us and saying, Mommy, Daddy. And she couldn't speak yet, but I imagine she was saying, No, thank you. No, thank you. (laughs) I remember a few years after that, sitting in a hospital room in, in Beaumont, Texas, and we were sitting with our youngest daughter, Willa's birth mother. I remember talking to her birth mother and trying to, in, in some small way, communicate my gratitude to her for choosing life for this little girl, and then for choosing us to be her parents. And then we prayed with her, and I remember very vividly when they rolled Willa Mae Charisma Peterson into the room, and we got to meet our daughter for the first time. There are just some moments that stand out in my mind as I think about my life. Four years ago, uh, three years into planting this church, and just a few months after that moment with our youngest daughter in Beaumont, Texas, I had another moment that will forever be etched in my mind. I was sitting at Symposium Coffee in Sherwood, and I was with my friend Monty. If you've been around our church for a while, you've heard me talk about my friend Monty a lot. Uh, Monty and I have been friends for years, and we've grabbed coffee a lot at this point in our journey together as friends, but something made this particular meeting different. Two things, actually. Number one, I was just a few weeks away from my first sabbatical, and I was really wrestling with some things, some internal struggles I was having, and I wanted to talk to Monty about it. The second thing that made it interesting is that Monty was a pastor for years, but had just recently left pastoral ministry and gone back to school for counseling and graduated with his degree. So he had all this newfound knowledge uh, in regards to counseling. And so I wanted to sit down with him and talk to him. So I reached out to him, asked him if we could meet together to prepare for my sabbatical together. So we sit down at symposium and he looks at me and with these very compassionate pastor eyes, sensing that something was not right in me, he said, Justin, is everything okay? And then for the next two hours, I essentially sobbed as I tried to articulate what I was feeling about my struggles and my insecurities, about all the the ways I fall short, about how inadequate I feel as a pastor and as a father at times. And even though I was unsure of what Monty would think after hearing my vulnerable thoughts, I just continued to ramble on and on, holding absolutely nothing back. I am confident that I made zero sense that day, but after about two hours of crying and sharing my deepest, darkest secrets, I looked at Monty and I said, do you know what I mean? And Monty just smiled, as he does, and he sat back, and he said, Justin, you were loved. You were loved by God, you were loved by Katie and your girls, you're loved by me and a host of other people, and God is not done with you yet. It was such a pivotal moment for me, and here's why. Outside of my parents, who have to love me because they're my parents, and my wife, who made a covenant with God to love me at my worst, it was the first time in my life at 32 years old, the first time in my life that I had ever felt fully known and fully loved. In that moment, Monty knew everything about me, the good, the bad, the ugly. He knew my insecurities and my flaws, my fears and my failures, and he didn't laugh at me and he didn't run away from me. He just gently reminded me that I was loved talking about the power and beauty of being fully known and fully loved, Dr. Tim Keller says this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need 
more than anything. It is what we need more than anything. And that is what I want to talk about this morning, what it's like to be loved by God, to be both fully known and fully loved. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, if you didn't bring your Bibles, these words will be on the screen. And if you're just visiting with us, you should know that we are in a 17-year-long series through the Gospel of John. And a few weeks ago, we made it to John chapter 4, and in particular, the first 42 verses, which is in my Bible called Jesus and the Woman of Samaria. It's often called the Woman at the Well. And we stopped here. You see, normally we would cover a story a week or a paragraph a week, sometimes a verse, sometimes even just one word a week. But this time we covered the whole story and we realized as we're looking at this story that we didn't need to move past it too quickly, that it deserved more time. So we essentially hit pause on the John series to hover over John chapter four. So you can think of the woman at the well story as like a diamond. And each week we're just turning the diamond slightly to see a different part of the diamond to see a different beauty or to see it from a different angle. So we're going to go back to John chapter 4 and pick it up in verse 1. John chapter 4 verse 1 says this. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. It was an intentional thing. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, last week, we talked about the significance of this interaction due to the fact that this was a woman. And if you didn't listen to last week's sermon, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. It is a, a foundational part of who we are at TCC. But for now, keep reading. Look at the middle of verse 7. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Give me a drink. Now, this would have shocked this woman. A drink from me, a, a woman of Samaria? And at this point in the story, this little back and forth breaks out about water, and Jesus then calls it living water, which is really confusing. And we'll talk way more about this living water when we get to John chapter 7 next year sometime. But for now, keep reading. Look at verse 16. Jesus does the unthinkable. He he reaches into her past and he brings up one of her most painful realities. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, but I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus, again, he's reaching into her past and he brings up that thing, that area of her life, that story from her past that she is ashamed of, that she is embarrassed to talk about. Now, we don't know why she's been married so many times. Perhaps, as we said a few weeks ago, maybe she's been married five times because all of her husbands died. And if that's true and she kept remarrying and every husband kept dying, then she would have been in this culture viewed as someone who was cursed by God. So not only has she been suffering the loss of husband after husband, but she's also cursed by God. Or perhaps the reason she couldn't keep a husband was because she couldn't have children. And in this culture, at this time, a woman's primary responsibility was to bear children for her husband. So maybe her husband's kept leaving her because of her infertility. Or maybe she's been married so many times because she's been unfaithful. But if she was, in fact, unfaithful, she would have been labeled a harlot or a whore and an outcast in society. Again, we don't know whether this woman was married five times because of her sin or because of sin done by her husbands, or some combination of the two. But what we do know 
is that on this day, at this time, this woman shows up to a well to draw water, and she is carrying a lot of baggage. She's carrying the baggage of sin, of brokenness, of failed marriages. And then Jesus, he just calls it out. He just calls it out. Look at verse 19. The, the woman said to him, after he calls it out, Sir, it's so funny to me. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. You think? I mean, like, he just told you everything about yourself. And she's kind of stating the obvious. Like, I perceive that you are a prophet. Also, water is wet. <laughs> Skip down. Look at verse 27. Just then, one of his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or what are you talking? Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And the town, the town is intrigued by this. All of the people, so much so that they all head out to meet this man who knows everything. They run out to meet this Jesus. Look at verse 39. Skip down. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What a great story. I mean, every time, we've been in three or four weeks, and every time I'm amazed at it. This woman who had lived a life of shame, a life filled with hurt, this woman who had probably come to the well on that day at that particular time to avoid being seen by others, this woman encounters Jesus. And not only does Jesus see her, Jesus knows her fully and he loves her deeply. He knows her fully and he loves her deeply and her life changed forever, forever. The question that we ask every week is, so what? Like, I mean, that's great for her. That's 2,000 years ago. So what does it mean for us 2,000 years later? Does this story have any impact on us? What is the application today? Well, the application today is very simple. If you don't take notes, you'll probably be able to remember it, okay? Here's, here's the takeaway for the day. It's just one. You are fully known and you are fully loved by God. I want you to sit in that. You are fully known. You are fully loved by God. Now, with the rest of our time, I want to take this in two parts. First, you are fully known by God. You are fully known by God. I mean, think about it. Do you believe that God knows you fully? Like, good, bad, and ugly. He knows you. It's what the scriptures teach plainly. And it plays out in a number of different ways. I mean, on one level, on one level, God knows you as a person. He knows what makes you, you. He knows what makes you unique. He knows your physical makeup and your personality. He knows how many hairs are on your head and how your mind works. He knows it all. And when we think about that, it shouldn't surprise us. After all, he created you. Psalm 139 says it like this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Brothers and sisters, he knows you. He made you. But it's even bigger, or I would say scarier than that. Because not only does God know you, he also knows the ins and outs of your sin life and your personal struggles. He knows about all the things that you have done and are ashamed to talk about. He knows about that night in college that you wish you could take back. He knows about that thing you did one time that no one else knows about, and you pray to God that no one ever finds out about it. He knows about the hidden app on your phone, and he knows about the deleted internet history on your computer. And here's what's even scarier especially for those of you in the room who hear me rattle off some things and you're like, I've never done any of that. Like, I'm a pretty pretty good person. I don't have any skeletons in my closet. Here's what's scary. God even knows our motives. So he knows, for some of you, that the real reason why you obey all the rules, the real reason why you do all of these righteous acts is not out of love for him, It's because you want other people to love you. You want other people to think that you have your act all together. So even in your attempts at righteousness, the underlying motivation is to be seen by others. And in the scriptures, there are people that did that, and they were called the Pharisees. And may I remind you, Jesus did not speak kindly to the Pharisees. He sees all of this stuff. He sees our sin. He also sees the motivations of our heart. So even when we're attempting to do the right thing with the wrong motivation, he sees it. But it's even greater than that because not only does he know you as a person, not only does he know your sins and struggles, not only does he know your motives and your deepest thoughts, he also knows what you're going through. He knows exactly what you're going through. Nothing has ever happened to you. Nothing that has ever happened to you, nothing you're walking through right now has ever caught God by surprise. Ever. Two years ago, when the world screeched to a stop and everything shut down, God was not up in heaven pacing around, biting his fingernails, going, what in the world is going on down there? Like, he wasn't caught off guard at all. He knew. He knew what was happening. And when you got that phone call from a police officer, letting you know that your son or daughter, your husband or your wife had just been arrested, and in an instant, your world came tumbling down around you. God didn't flinch in his goodness or his mercy. And and when your spouse told you that they were done, that they were done with the marriage, either directly with their words or indirectly by their actions, and you thought, man, I gave up 10, 20, 30 years of my life for this person, and for what? What do I have to show for it? When that happened to you, God didn't flinch in his goodness or his mercy. He saw you. He saw your pain. And when your church, the church that you called home for years, the church that you got married in, the church that you raised your kids in, split, or worse, dissolved overnight. And you watched all these people you love walk away from the church, or even worse, walk away from their faith altogether. God was not shocked by that. He knew He was watching. Please hear me, dear friends. Your trials and your troubles do not escape God's divine gaze. They can't. He can't look away. He sees what you're going through. But it's even greater than that. 
It's even greater than that, because not only does he know you as a person, not only does he know your sins and struggles, not only does he know your motives and your deepest thoughts, not only does he know exactly what you're going through, but God is always, always, always thinking about you. He's thinking about you right now, not y'all, you. Psalm 139, which we read earlier, is all about God's vast knowledge of us. And tucked away in that psalm is this really beautiful line. It says this, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. In other words, the next time you go to the coast and you feel the sand between your toes and you look down the coastline and you just see miles and miles of sand, may it be a reminder to you that at that very moment, God is thinking of you. Now, I know that that statement can sound hokey or even a little weird. It kind of sounds like something my sweet grandma might say to me, like, God is always thinking of you, sweetie. But, I mean, think about it. Like, doesn't God have, like, bigger problems to worry about? Like, doesn't, doesn't he have more important things to be thinking of? I mean, after all, I am just one person, and I'm not even a really important person in the grand scheme of things. And I don't, I don't want to bother God, the God of the universe, with my concerns or my issues. But friends, it doesn't bother God at all. It doesn't bother God at all to think of you. In Luke chapter 18, you can go read it later, Jesus tells a parable about a persistent widow who goes to the local judge to plead for justice. And this widow, she had the audacity, the boldness to go to the local judge. And Luke chapter 18 verse 5 says that she was, quote, bothering the judge. And then Jesus says this, you have that freedom with God. You can go to God at any time for any purpose and ask for anything. But it almost seems crazy, right? Like to go to the God of the universe, to go to the God of the universe and expect that he sees us and expect that he cares about our little concerns, it seems crazy. It almost feels, as Luke 18 says, that I'm bothering God. Like, God, I know that you're running the galaxies right now. And I know we have this like global crisis, this war in Ukraine, but my hip hurts could you take a look at it at some point? That'd be really helpful. Thank you. Like that feels, feels crazy to even say. And yet, that's what Jesus encourages us to do. God, our Father, is always thinking of us. And he delights in us when we bother him with our concerns. But again, bother is just a funny word to use. Every time I say it, it just feels weird to talk about it in the context of God. Because it has negative connotations. But think of it this way. Four years ago, uh, as I mentioned, we flew down to the great nation of Texas to adopt our youngest daughter. And when we did that, we had to stay down there for a couple of weeks. I think we were down there 10 days uh, to finish up paperwork. And at the time, we had a four-year-old, Naya, our oldest. And we had to leave Naya here. So we left Naya here, and we went down to Texas to take care of that adoption. And it was the longest we'd ever been away from Naya uh, at any one point. And we missed her like crazy. Now, let's say just hypothetically, let's say we get back from Texas and we pull into the driveway and we haven't seen Naya in 10 days. And Naya looks out the window and she sees us. And as she does most afternoons when I come home from work, she comes running out the front door to give me a hug. And she jumps into my arms and she gives me a hug and she goes, Daddy, I've missed you so much. And there's so much I want to tell you about. I want to tell you about this game I played and this thing I did with my cousin Ava and this thing we did at school. But as she starts to tell me those things, she looks over my shoulder and she sees our newborn daughter in the back seat. And let's say that Naya sees our new daughter, her new sister, and she stops and she goes, but dad, I, I'm sorry, dad. I, I know that you just got off the plane. 
I know that you've had a long 10 days. I know that you've got this like, other human that you have to care for. And so, Dad, I don't want to bother you with my concerns. Let me tell you what I'm not going to say in that moment. I am not going to say, well, good, kid, because I don't have time for you to be bothering me with all your four-year-old concerns. I would never say that for a lot of reasons, but primarily, primarily because I delight in being the man she comes to when there is something heavy on her heart, when she's had a rough day, when she stubs her toe or skins her knee, when things aren't going her way, when life is disappointing. I delight in being the man that she comes to with her concerns, and so it is with the God of all creation. He delights when his children, his elect, bother him with even their smallest concerns. Brother or sister, God is thinking of you all the time, and he is not bothered by you. Friends, you are fully known by God, fully known. Let me try to summarize this idea that you're fully known by God by reading you a quote from the great J.I. Packer. He says this, what matters supremely is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands, I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off of me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. You are fully known by God. But not only are you fully known by God, you are also fully loved by God. It is one thing to be known. It is a whole other thing to be loved. Think about the woman in our story, John 4. She meets Jesus, and Jesus knows everything about her. And what does this woman do? You remember? She runs into town, and she immediately tells the whole town, come meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. Come meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. Now, I don't know about you, but if I meet a man who can tell me everything I've ever done, and he proves it, he goes, in sixth grade, you and Keith did this, and in seventh grade, I saw you doing this, in eighth grade, if I can meet a man that could tell me all of those things, I'm not bringing any of you to meet him. <laughs> I love my job too much, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to do it. In fact, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to try to keep him away from you at all costs. I'm going to try to keep him away, but not her. Why? Why did she bring all of these people to this man? Because this man was different. This man was different. He knew everything about her, but he did not shame her. He was not repulsed by her. He didn't think less of her. Instead, he loved her. And the same is true of you. The same is true of you. He knows you fully, and yet he also loves you fully. And some of you need to hear this because I know there are dozens of men and women, I have conversations all the time with men and women in our church who feel unknown and who feel misunderstood. And on one hand, you're okay with it because you think, man, if people really did know me, then they would not love me. They definitely wouldn't like being around me if they knew the real me. But then on the other hand, you kind of wish people did know you better. You want to feel vulnerable with people. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, no one else in the world would understand my unique struggle. No one else in the world would understand what I'm going through. No one gets me. But I'm here to tell you that based on the authority of the scriptures, that is simply not true. It's not reality. God knows you fully and he loves you fully. But here's what makes this truth even more potent. What makes it even more potent is that we did nothing 
to earn or deserve this love and affection by God. If you think for a moment that you did anything to earn this love, you're wrong. We did nothing to earn it. It is solely because of his goodness and his mercy. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's worth reading later this week, but it's about a crippled man named Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was not only crippled, but he was actually an enemy of the king, King David. And yet, even though he was an enemy and even though he was crippled, he was invited to live with the king and to eat at the king's royal table. And you go read the story in 2 Samuel 9, you you know what he did to earn it? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He couldn't earn a right to sit at the king's table. So think about this. As Mephibosheth sits at the table, the king's table, he likely encountered the most important people in the kingdom at the time all of whom are there for different reasons. I mean, just look around the table in your mind's eye. There's Joab, the commander of the armies of Israel. He is at the table by virtue of his military skill. And then next to him, you have Zadok, the high priest of Israel, at the table by virtue of his high religious status. Next to him, you have David's son, Solomon, and Absalom, and the others at the table by being born into a royal family. Then you have Nathan, the prophet, at the table by virtue of his spiritual gifting. You have an influential landowner at the table by virtue of his wealth. You have the head of the scribes seated at the table by virtue of his intellect. And then you have Mephibosheth at the table solely because of King David's goodness and kindness and mercy. One commentator says of this beautiful story, he says, all of these were welcomed to the table by virtue of their prominence and high position. But one guest was physically carried in by attendance for every meal. He was not dignified, nor one deserving to be there. He was simply Mephibosheth. He daily ate at the table because of the radical grace of the king of Israel. He daily was reminded of the greatness by the opulence and majesty of his setting. And yet, he knew he did not deserve to be there. There was a poignant reason, lesson of grace to all present. It was not a single action of goodwill. Rather, it was repeatedly, day after day, given as a commitment to grace. It was given by the king to an unworthy, crippled man. Friends, this is us. God knows us crippled. Crippled emotionally, crippled relationally, crippled some physically, all of us crippled spiritually at some level. And yet, we're known and we are loved. We are forever invited to the banquet table of the king, not by virtue of our wealth or intelligence or good looks, but solely based on the kindness of the king. It's because of his mercy that we are loved. Paul describes it this way in Titus. He says this in Titus 3, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Praise be to God for his mercy and his kindness. Praise God that he sees us, that he knows us, and that he loves us. In just a moment, we will finish our gathering by just worshiping, singing together, and coming to the tables of communion. And as we do, I want to draw our attention to one final verse this morning. It's a a verse that I've been thinking about all week, and quite frankly, it's a verse that I haven't really noticed before, or at least not spent much time in. I think primarily because it's in 1 Corinthians 13, which is like the love chapter that gets read at every wedding ever. 
Um, and so I think I just got caught up in like the love chapter and missed this little verse, but it's 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It says this, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Even then when I have been fully known. Paul here is talking about that day when our faith becomes sight, when we get to see God face to face, and then we will know God fully and love him fully just as we have been known fully and loved fully by God. Anglican priest Aaron Bear, talking about this verse, says this, so good. She says, the apostle Paul says that we only see through a mirror dimly. I may be wrong, but I think the point is this. What each of us longs for the most is to be both fully known and fully loved miraculously, God feels the same way about us. God, too, wants to be fully known and fully loved. God wants this so much that he has promised to knock down every obstacle in the way, enduring even his own death to be with us, to consummate this love. And so in those moments where we experience the joy of being both totally vulnerable and absolutely cherished, we get just a taste, a mere glimpse of what God has always felt for us and what one day, one day, we will feel for God. This is what the tables of communion represent. We come to the tables to be completely vulnerable before God, to be seen by God, to be known by God, but also to be loved by him. We come to the tables to get a glimpse, just a mere taste of eternity. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word and for your goodness and your kindness. God, may we never get over this reality. God, I pray that when we see it, when we read it, when we experience, that it would just overwhelm our souls. God, I think so many of us move throughout life just playing this image management game where we want to make others think well of us, forgetting all the time that you know us, you see our motivations, you see the wickedness in our heart, and yet, yet, you still love us. Help us believe that. God, I, I truly, truly believe that if we could understand just how much you love us, that it would transform every aspect of our life. I pray for transformation this morning in the lives of your children. God, as we come to the tables and as we sing, help us to see you clearly and help us to believe that you see us and that you love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.